Welcome back to the AEC Hive, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, director at ArcDux and co-founder of the AEC Hive. Hi, everyone. This is John Egan, CEO of BIM Launcher and co-founder at AEC Hive. Looking forward to today's discussion. We're very excited today to have Matthew Jackson with us from BIM Object. Matthew is the Director of Business Development at BIM Object. He's an architect and he calls himself a digitization geek. Matthew, you're very welcome. <laughs> Do you want to give us a little bit of a background about yourself and how you've got to where you are before we get going? I could talk about this forever, right? But let's keep it short. I've had a really interesting, I think, career life. So always wanted to be an architect when I was growing up. Super excited about being an architect and I went to university to do that. And I graduated you know, very near the financial crash, you know, the, the big one in 2008. So I ended up finding myself in tech and I found myself getting really interested in this, this, this BIM thing around 2010. And I ended up finding this little Swedish startup called BIM Objects back in 14. And I've been there since and just, just trying to solve the digitization problem. Digitization geek, I think, is a really good way of saying it. I get really excited about really geeky data stuff and digitization processes and i need to get out more i think i think covid (laughs) needs to go out and drink more beer i think to calm down that's fantastic maybe just picking up on the name of your company but yeah it's something that i've always been interested in is this this Mm -hmm. concept that we can consider buildings and infrastructure at the object level at the component level yeah, mm-hmm. because I think previously, as, as an architect who's worked you know, for many years in all mediums, drawings and CAD, and um, you, you, you're always considering the whole building, the whole piece of infrastructure, and you, you know, your work was involved in producing general arrangement drawings, and yeah, you know, so you, you're working at that sort of macro scale almost. But w- with BIM, we discovered you know the the power of working with buildings and infrastructure at the component level, and yeah, it's something I've always been fascinated about. And, you know, when you think about buildings and infrastructure at the component level, well, then there's a lot of re- repeatability because, of course, you know, everybody has this argument, buildings aren't manufacturer because every building is bespoke. But when you look at the components of buildings and infrastructure, of course, those aren't bespoke because product, building products, building materials have to go through many years of development and testing and everything before they get to the market. So what actually goes into buildings is quite repeatable across all yes. buildings. And with BIM, you know, that just sounded like such a great concept that you could take repeatable products and materials and reuse them you know, over and over again throughout projects. But I don't think that's actually happened in practice. I find architects and engineers are drawing, if you like, <laughs> Yeah, the same components over and over again across projects across the world. So I agree. I think I think there's a big concern, right? So I, I'm really fortunate. I get to lecture at uh, at two architecture universities, and you know, you come in and young people, you know, they want to learn about about the industry, and you get the you get the lecturers who don't really understand what BIM is. Let's be honest. Sometimes you start talking about these these things, and the easiest way that I explain it is that. Instead of drawing something, you, you want to take a load of little Lego bricks and then build your design from tiny little Lego pieces. And those Lego pieces are standardized. And I think the big kickback that you get straight away from like the architecture community is like, yeah, but that means all buildings will be the same. And it's like, well, no, that's not really the case. You can take the, the example. If you have six two by four Lego pieces, right? The most standard Lego brick, the first Lego brick that was ever in- invented. If you have six of those, you can arrange those six bricks in 915 million different ways. 
by collecting them together, right? So there is no argument that common components or having these common design elements will stifle design creativity. I think that's the first big leap we have to get ourselves over. And then I think you'll start to see, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get, I was speaking to somebody the other week, they were comparing, you know, when you go and configure a car online, when you go and configure a car online, you want to buy a new car, you feel like I'm designing my own car. It's common elements, common platform, but it's controlled within a factory and and you build it in a factory and then you place it into the environment and the environment moves around. I don't think we'll ever get to that point with buildings. You You do have to accept that every site is unique. Like it has unique problems, roads, uh, how you get electricity in and out, people. But there's definitely a common elemental part to it, which should be considered. I mean, you know, we've we've done work with Ministry of Justice, we've done work with supermarkets, we've done work with you know with large large organisations who are actually trying to standardise their spaces, and then they give the spaces to architects and go, here's my standard design space. Here's all the elements that will be in it, but I need you to arrange them for the site and make the site work, make the entrance work, you know, make the common spaces work, make it functional. Focus on the design. Focus on the design <laughs> and not and not worrying about disabled toilet details, which I remember doing when I was a, an architect for yeah. a college. It's a, you don't need to worry about that. You you just need to put the elements in place and worry about the impact of the building and the flow of the building, like all the cool yeah. stuff that architects want to do, to be honest, it's kind of weird they're fighting that, that battle. Yeah, and I think, I mean, a lot of architects are spe- spending enormous amounts of time on tedious, mundane type of work, like I can say, creating these generic objects, you know, and, you know, then having to go and in the first place and then having to go and make a decision ultimately mm-hmm. on what, what type of product is going to going to be used and then going to the you know going following that up with getting all the certification and uh, you know all the technical information that demonstrates compliance with with various regulations and every single architect is doing that on every single project and, and just think, think that that's what, what, that's what an enormous get... amount amount of wasted time <laughs> Yeah, I just think that's going to get critically harder as we move forward. So as we move forward, it's like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to throw the sustainability grenade into the conversation straight away. Right. So if you look at what Denmark and Sweden are doing. So in Denmark, Copenhagen had this big we want to be the first carbon neutral city by 2025. And what happened was that in Danish legislation, they went right from 2023. So basically, right, it's first of October today. So you know, 15 months from now. You cannot get planning consent for a building which is over 500 square meters if you do not deliver the carbon impact of the design and when it's in use. Just think about that. So they want life cycle carbon analysis because the reason they want that is because they can't calculate the carbon neutrality of of the city as a as a living, breathing city without understanding what carbon impacts are going to come into the city with new buildings or infrastructure or whatever you want. Right. So going back to what you just said there, Ralph, which is really interesting. Imagine doing this uniquely every single time, arranging products and spaces uniquely every single time, and then trying to work out the carbon impact of that for every single building. I mean, you're talking like ten, tenfold the amount of work that you're going to have to do today. And that's just to answer one question. We're not even talking about long-term maintainability of buildings, mass customization of buildings, you know, recycling of buildings. We're not, we're not even discussing that. We're just talking about carbon, one thing. Mm. That's tough to do. 
It's very tough. And I suppose it's particularly tough, I suppose, if each product manufacturer is presenting their information in a different way. Yeah. So, I mean, as an architect, I'm just using that example, but you, you know, you, you're comparing two or three products and mm. you're trying to make a decision, okay, which one is better? And, mm-hmm. you know, so, so you have to do that. You have to look at the performance data across a number of attributes in relation to that product, including carbon and how carbon is counted. And, and then if each of those manufacturers presents the data to you, well, firstly, in a static format that you can only read with your eyes and secondly in each one is sort of presenting it in a, in a different way that they're measuring yeah. it and it just becomes incredibly difficult to to compare yeah, and does. contrast well i suppose on one hand you might say maybe the the manufacturers are doing that purposely so that they you know that, that people can't do a direct comparison and throwing that in there that maybe, you know, maybe but i mean maybe the, the certain most... manufacturers don't want their products compared with others because they might be shown up to be inferior products uh, with if I mean, they cook the books if you like maybe but i mean i think we've also struggled with like the standards of of what that is right i mean like so in main in in europe we have obviously epd so environmental product declaration certifications right and there's actually multiple different ways that you can measure it and then like but how do you how do you present that information up to the industry that's useful. So, so, so this is always my big thing, right? If a, if a manufacturer has their information in PDFs, you come to the problem that, that you just said. How do I, ma- how do I manually look at it with my eyes and identify what's best? A PDF, at least the information is there, but it's not useful from getting that information either into a, into a modeling process or, or to choose the right product from a specification process. One thing that we're trying to do at BIM objects, one thing that I'm really passionate about is how can we make the life of an architect and a specifier easier? So, I mean, an architect basically wants to create the best possible building that they want, they want to create, and that includes the products. A specifier wants to make sure that they specify the right products for the project while having cost in their mind. And then the client wants the best possible outcome. And I mean, we have one client who we're helping today who for every building spends between one and a half and 2000 man hours going over PDFs to identify what are the best products to buy because they run mission, they run very critical in, uh, in infrastructure. And we've identified that actually, if you have all this in a database of information, then you can, you can shortcut a lot of these problems. The problem is, is, is having the manufacturer's information in a common database and have it accessible and usable by the architectural engineering construction communities and whether that's a, as a BIM object or whether that's as a data set or both or either is kind of where I think the industry is going and where we're kind of evolving in, into. I mean, you know, yeah. and but, also the, the amount of work that sort of checking compliance work is being done multiple times. So, for instance, the architect has a professional responsibility to to specify products that meet the regulations and, and various mm-hmm criteria and environmental performance you know if they're designing a building to a a particular standard so they obviously going through a lot of work doing that checking and then on the other side the client you know wants to satisfy themselves as well that they um that their building will will meet the standards that they want to achieve and so they're probably doing a bit of that checking as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and and everybody's checking the same information over and over again and mostly because it's it's uncertain whether that information that is being presented is validated. So, 
you, yeah, so if an architect gets some information, they're not sure where they got it from. Maybe they just picked it off a website, <laughs> you know, or, or yep. maybe some junior person in the office just took a generic object and started populating it with some yeah. information. Nobody knows. So that, so you have to check it. There's no validation. You know, there's no sort of a stamp on the, the information saying this is absolutely the, the right data from the manufacturer. I think that's a really authorized. good point. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, I mean, because if everyone knew that, then you could say, well, at least I don't have, if there's a thousand objects in my model and, you know, 800 of those have got a little stamp on it, mm-hmm. a token maybe, um, a digital token to say that this is definitely valid um, and authorized by the the supplier, then yep. yeah, it will reduce your work, re- reduce everybody's work. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, what we're talking about here is reducing risk and increasing trust, right? I mean, those mm, those, mm. those those are things which are sorely needed across multiple areas in the industry. And I, one thing that we we do take very 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 seriously is is how do we how do we get in, in information from the manufacturers and how do we ensure that it's that they take responsibility in in the accuracy and and how can we track and trace information that's that's either within the database or within within the objects i think i think that conversation um has been difficult in in the past few years to be really honest and i think now there is certainly an appetite for that conversation because there has been you know events unfortunately in the world um um where you know buildings have failed um of course you know we had spectacularly yeah <laughs> in some and in some instances and, and we had another one in milan didn't we a few a few weeks ago um very similar to grenfell where you know those questions have to be asked and and we as an industry have to take real responsibility at ensuring that the right products are specified at the design phase i mean mm. it is absolute key and i'm not saying that people should necessarily choose a manufacturer from day one what i'm saying is that people need to be able to have a specification and then be able to track what products meet that specification Mm. i mean i think that's really 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 key um because then because then you you can start predicting the future right i mean like the whole point of from from the, when I was first in, introduced to BIM in in the early days, BIM was explained to me. It was like Matthew, what we do is we're going to create a complete digital version of the building in a computer, work out whether we can build it, how we can build it, how it will work, and then we'll build it in real life. And to me, you at least need to have an understanding of the performance data of the products. You may or may not need geometric representations of 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 those products for everything like if it's a pump which is behind a wall no but if it's a window a fire door yeah probably quite good to have the accurate geometric representations of those so you understand where everything is but at least get in the pump behind the wall you, you do yeah. need to first you do well, you need, need to know where it yeah and, and, <laughs> and, and okay and you need to have the access point the ins and outs so okay so yeah, yeah. If, so, if the pump it, fails and um yeah so i think um Location data and location is in, in 3D space. So location of objects, even if they are hidden or behind walls, still have, those objects still have to be installed there and they, at, at some point in time, they may, may need to be found. And they're part of So, but uh, like that's an important point you brought up about trust in data. And John, maybe you can come in here yeah, because I mean, that is a big issue is, 
um, there's so much data flowing around and being shared and copied and pasted. Nobody knows, firstly, the, the, where the data originated from. There's, there's no way of, well, seems to be no way of tracking the data, like who's changed it, who's edited it, who, you know, who's, who is the originator. Yeah. I mean, designers might think they're the originators, but again, if we go to that, that idea that buildings are collections of objects, you know, you know, most of the data around the particular components should have originated from the, the, the product manufacturers, but probably doesn't. Uh, John, you, you're, we've, we've had lots of conversations about the exchange of data across um, environments and how to track and trust data. I mean, that's what you're doing, I suppose, with, with BIM launchers is, is trying to, to track, you know, the, the, the data. I mean, it's, it's probably not what people are doing at the moment, but you would imagine in the future that every manufacturer would have its common data environment that is then sort of connected, if you like, to, to every project that uses those products. Yeah. That's not what happens at the moment, but. <laughs> I think it, like it, all, it obviously comes back to the intent of the originator with the data. And, you know, from, from our perspective, when we connect these disintegrated systems, we are doing our best to maintain the integrity of the information as it's exchanged from designers' hands into contractors and down, you know, down supply chains' uh, hands. We're doing our best to maintain the information and the, you know, the originator intent as as it exchanges exchanges hands with a view that, you know, this will produce a higher quality digital representation of the building and thus might be able to be leveraged in a better way throughout the building lifecycle. It's interesting listening to your listening to you guys talk because all I can think of is blockchain uh, you know as a, as a solution to actually creating a ledger in which building products essentially get their you know their trust their trust characteristic from so at any point during the life cycle you could click on an object copy paste the UUID into the blockchain uh, or the le- into the ledger essentially and double check where that information came from, and also if the integrity of that information has been altered. Um, so we, so that's so that's interesting that you said. That. So we did a, we did a little skunk works a few a few years ago um, around ledger te- technology, and we one thing that we understand is that um, you know products products in buildings can change specification all of the time, even really simple things from changing a, a tap from chrome to gold. Right. The most simplest of things. And those decisions in the design process or the specification process, of course, get lost. Um, it's very, you know, we we let's really be honest here. We will never, never document an architect going, oh, I've, I've changed the color of, of uh, something um, or, you know, I've you know, I've 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 moved that from the left to the right. You know, we're never going to get to that minutiae. So I think ledger tech is quite interesting. So we, we did a little skunk works where we wanted to move from Archicad uh, into VR, into Revit and back again and, and use like some translation technology. And what we wanted to do, we just wanted to prove that if somebody did a design in Archicad, we beamed it up to a, a, a VR system and they were like, oh, no, I don't like that tap. I don't I, I don't like it. 
I want it gold or I want it ch and and that shower filling I want changed to to the other shower filling. And what we did was when things were moved or things were changed, we we were able because we assign GUIDs at an object level, we were able to assign a, a change log, a ledger of change. And who made that change and when they made that change and in what system did did they make that change? And um, and we were able to do that. We 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 were able to record these 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 changes at at that level. That technology is just sitting there doing nothing right now because complicated, I think, is the easiest way to say. But I kind of agree, really. Like, but also, do we need to get to that point? Do 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 we need to get that far down the road, uh, or do we just need to understand like general design change? Like, because obviously, because we're I'm going down to like the most minutiae of adjustments now. Um, in that way, is that what you mean, John, or do you mean kind of like broader? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's exactly hit the nail on the head with that Skunkworks project. That's exactly what I was proposing. Any change in design would come as a result of a decision, and the individual or organisation that made that decision should be responsible for the decision. In order to track those changes, yeah, blockchain seems like the most suitable technology available because of its immutability mm. um, characteristics. Mm. You you make a decision, it's on the blockchain. Fair enough, if you come back a week later and say, hey, I want to change it back, yeah, you can make that change back, but it's, mm. uh, it's still going to be on the blockchain. You know, to your TAP example, um, and one thing that Ralph and I often bring into the, well, I bring into this is the, is some of the techniques, um, used in software development. What we use, particularly when we're talking about code changes, which often reflect features within our, within our software is this concept of semantic versioning. So you, what we do is leverage this framework to say that if there's a major change, like complete change breaks, will break everyone's downchain kind of designs and decisions that, or well, designs and decisions that they've made around the top level software. We would have that as, you know, a major, major design change. Then we'd have minor design change, which would be something that could, within, inside the bounds of the context that everyone was thinking and doesn't necessarily break the it it will break smaller decisions uh, that have been made down downstream and then obviously the third level then would be even mi more minor changes so mm -hmm. what i'm thinking about in terms of your example is if you cha change the shape of the bathroom you know to a one meter or two meter by two meter uh block if you like uh, you're not going to be able to fit in a bat. You're not going to be able to fit in. A, so it would break everyone's decisions that have been made at the next level around which bats to use, etc. And then if you were going to make a more minor change, you could like such as the tap on the bat. That's a really minor change. So you're kind of it's just about employing these techniques for collaboration around this uh, complex thing, which is a building. Yep. And what makes it complex is all the decisions and um, that's gone into it and how yeah, I mean, that's represented you, in, a, in a framework you, is you have, you have i mean you have to think about the the amount of 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 products that go into a building i mean you 
just 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 the product types is in the thousands. When you talk then about individual products, you know, if you want to start counting the individual bricks and blocks and taps and scales and like the in, the individual elements that go into a building is 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 just huge. And like and going back to the beginning, the start of this kind of area of the conversation, increasing trust and and decreasing risk. If we if we if we design the best building possible. What should that entail from a design point of view? Are we just going to design something which is generic and, and elemental? Or we can design something to go at least have specification to say, no, you need to you need to build the building using elements which meet this performance criteria. The architects and the engineers are really good at that, like especially when you get to, to the engineering level where they go, right, you need a, a heating and cooling system which meets these specifications to ensure maximum efficiency for the building over a lifespan of X. But then when we hand over that information to construction companies, construction companies don't actually buy much material apart from the concrete, it seems like they'll, they'll hand that down to their supply chain, you know, to to, to the fit out crews and go buy stuff which meets the specification that decision then all of a sudden hops over and hops down the line and kind of the i think the question that the industry has to ask itself is that who should be making the product decisions should an architect and engineer say you have to buy that or should there be you have to buy that which meets that specification and then how do you check that within a system because different suppliers different manufacturers every product has a nuance every product has potentially a different place where you connect it within a system and if an engineer has designed a system where all the pipes run a certain way but you pick a manufacturer where the pipes have to go in from the back not the side for example then you you potentially have to do all the solving on site situation, which then, of course, is extremely messy. And, and that's what creates all of the problems. I don't have answers to these questions, but I think these are the problems which kind of exist. And I'm saying we're saying is that, well, first of all, at least use the information that's being presented. And you know, we are working really hard on presenting as much information as possible in as many different ways as possible. So it's useful. But I still think there's that fundamental question over who who makes the decisions around the elements of a building is it and, the architects and, and engineers or is it this yes well, i mean if you, could... I don't know if you guys have been following the grenfell inquiry and but it's fascinating just the, the circumstances that arose that the particular cladding system was changed you know from what mm. was specified by the architect and you know that change wasn't picked up uh, you know and and that led to a disaster where you know seventy people lost their lives, and, and um, you, you know, and it's it's basically that change was all buried in paperwork. Based, you know, so had somebody the time to go through all the paperwork, they probably would have picked up that that change had occurred, but you know, probably just didn't have the time to do that. And and this is where you think, well, technology could help because like computers don't mind thousands of bits of information. You know, like they actually yeah. love working with millions bits, bits of data points. Yeah, that's what they're designed yeah. for. Um, yeah, there aren't many humans which enjoy enjoy looking at huge Excel spreadsheets and working out if they look correct, right? I mean, like, that's not, yeah, yeah. That's not what humans yeah. are designed to do, I don't think. Yeah, so, but, so I suppose the, what you're saying there, Matthew, is yeah, as we go through this process and a, an architect or an engineer you know, determines a performance criteria and obviously that's their job their job is to make sure that the products um meet a certain performance to meet the building regulations mm. and you know they, they have a they have the best understanding of what 
compliance and everything means. I mean, the the guy, the purchasing clerk in a contracting company doesn't have that sort of experience, and you know they're probably only thinking about price. Yeah, and also um, like, and this is where the big. Sorry to jump in here, but also this is the big controversy around like public sector and 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 private sector. So in in private sector, and again, we work with some really, uh, we work with uh, Scandinavia's bigger supermarkets. As a private se- se- sector client, they already have a very defined supply chain. So we're like, we help them standardize refrigeration spaces and like all the, all the units that go in there. And then basically they have three different refrigeration sizes for the supermarkets and you just place it into the design and it's all standardized. Brilliant, fantastic idea. And you have a very strict supply chain around that. The problem then you flip it over to the, to the, to the other side is then pub, it's in the public sector where everyone goes, yes, but you can't, you can't use manufacturing information because it's public sector. It has to go to tender. And I'm like, well, well, why not? Because what is the harm in saying this or similar? At least you're testing a building that's going to be built with something that's real or exists. And you've gone, I found this. This is the best product I think would work for your building to run efficiently over 50 years, which is when you're when we're asked to design or build a school, we're asked to design or build it for a 50 year lifespan. But we take no understanding or account of the cost of that over 50 years. We just look at the building cost. And then we go, okay, well, I found these really cool products. Like this will be, this will really work over the 50 year lifespan. Oh no, but you can't say that. You just have to specify and just say, oh, it needs to do this. Well, well, well why not? Just say all similar. It's, it does kind of mess things up where people go, oh, you can't, you can't go and use well, manufacturer's data. But is, so isn't we, the reason, yeah. the reason that the, the private sector are doing that is because the, the the time that it takes to determine if a product meets their needs, you know, is takes quite long. And yes. so once they've worked through that, they're saying, well, I don't want to have to do that again. So that's and if it. they I've find decided, a good one that, that works, you yeah. just copy and paste. Yeah. So I've decided that's what I'm going to use, and you can use nothing else because mm-hmm. I don't want to have to go through that that procedure again of you know testing another product and um, yeah and but in office, I mean, I do understand in the, the in the public sector that you have to allow competition. That I mean, that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely, I'm not and, saying it's yeah. Too. It's it's kind of like open BIM versus closed BIM, you know, proprietary versus uh, you know being open. So like, I'm I'm quite o- I'm quite for the idea that things should be open and people should be able to mm-hmm. compete in the market and and therefore the the approach that the, what that you described in the the private sector there isn't. Uh, it's more proprietary and it's, it's not, it's not allowing for SMEs in the market to participate, uh, and demonstrate their, um, their ability to meet the performance criteria. Whereas, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually for the, the more public sector approach where it's, it's open, but the challenge I'm, is I'm, I'm demonstrating the nodding. compliance. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here is, nodding on a podcast and realize that no one can see my face. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm not. I'm. I'm not saying that 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 the public sector should become proprietary. I'm saying that surely, surely it is better, better for the design to to design something based on real things. And then when it goes out to tender, you go, okay, we based it on these real things, but but you still need to go out to tender. You still need to go and find um, uh, that product or product from an SME and. And because an SME can come into a market and, and create one or two products which are amazingly amazing for performance, and 
and and no architect, no specifier knows every single product in the world for what they're looking for. There are so many companies producing so many amazingly good products all over the world, and like you, there's you, you know you you're never going to know all of them, so you're always going to yeah. miss out on. I mean, on one of the thing. the things about technology and and some of these ideas that we're talking about, you know, ledgers and blockchain and you know, authorized and trustworthy data and everything. Well, one of those things, one of the, what, what some people might see as a negative is it creates a, a layer of transparency, which maybe the market isn't ready for because, hmm. um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are selling stuff, marketing stuff. Um, maybe even f- knowing full well that their, their product is inferior and, uh, doesn't meet certain criteria or specifications but if you present it in a certain way um you, you know you can sell it and um and if people don't have an the ability to to check or confirm whether your your product is inferior then uh then they might buy it yeah and as soon as we start saying well now we've got to standardize data and performance and the variables that you use and the way you calculate certain things. You know, um, and I think that's where things are going. I think in Europe, there's, yeah. there's initiatives, that, you know, the smart CE marking um, initiatives, um, the, the, even the standards that are being developed for, for product data uh, at, at the European level. You know, I think that's where it'll go. But I'm, I'm yeah. certain, I'm pretty certain there's a large number of people who don't like that idea because it, it will expose yes. the inferior nature of their product, which they've been able to overcome with, with marketing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, by and also having a good also, marketing like, engine. Like shortcutting, shortcutting maybe manufacturing processes or, or quality processes. Right. And, and, you know, and don't, don't, you know, for people who are listening, don't take this the wrong way. But if you think about the commoditization of, of products, not just in construction everywhere, in, in, in every industry, right? You know, TVs, shoes, um, you know, bricks, whatever. You know, it, it's, it's, in a lot of cases, it's been a race to the, to, to the bottom, right? So how cheaply can we manufacture it where it still has some kind of performance and that people are willing to buy? It goes back to that, you know, you, you get what you pay for trope. And I think one of the big struggles that we've had in the industry is that we we get budget set for building buildings i've i've designed schools and hospitals you get set a budget and it's like we want you to spend this much money per square meter and it's like okay but but that means that am i trying to build a bigger school as possible for a budget or am i trying to build the best school as possible for the budget and one thing that having all this data does and understanding performance is we can now calculate long-term building cost so one of the fascinating things that have always kind of really frustrated me about the industry is that how many capex capital expenditure so the cost of building and operations expenditure facility management how often do they sit down together and say we're going to build a building it doesn't really happen and it's kind of like but if you and and you know, I, I've been actually I've been talking about this for years at conferences, and I, I actually do a slide presentation where, where I've taken two products from BIM Object, their their water pumps, um, and I've I've made up the data and I've gone like this one costs ten thousand euros and these are its performance, 
This is how long it lasts. This is how often you have to replace it over 50 years. And this is option B. It costs 20,000. But over over 50 years, that 20,000 euro product costs twice as much from CapEx, but actually costs 33 percent less on OPEX because because it's it's got a longer life. Um, it's it, you have to maintain it less. It is more energy efficient. Um, it's more performance efficient. So and we've never been able to calculate these things before, really. No, without the information from the manufacturer. Well, even if you can, sometimes the challenge is the capital budget is somebody else's budget to the operational yes. budget. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, like even the capital, whoever's managing the capital budget will say, mm. well, that's not my problem. It's, yeah, I've got, I've, I've got this budget. I have to do my work within this budget. And if it costs the operational team twice as much, that's their problem. Yeah. So it's, and it's think, almost like a, there's a layer above that's missing saying, well, actually, guys, uh, we're, we're in this together. So <laughs> that layer, so, so that layer now exists because what I thought would happen is that people would kind of key on to how much a building costs to run. And this goes back to my sustainability, um, um, big, big, argument that and that is is sustainability i think will be the thing that will push this this into the forefront where what's what the sustainability mandates are going to do is they're going to say you need to run a building to be you know as low energy as as possible right to be as thermally efficient as possible and that is nothing to do with cost that is to do with performance based on you know not having the planet burn to death all of us because you know the temperatures are rising so therefore if you want a building which is more um you know energy efficient um usually you have to spend more money you have to go and find better performing products which cost more and incidentally therefore the side effect of making a building more sustainable in theory in theory is that it's actually cheaper to run over time because you're using less electricity and you're uh, and you are transferring less waste energy out of the building so it kind of it's kind of done this really weird journey where and and, and this is kind of like the, i'm having really interesting conversations with with architects in denmark and sweden because they have this mandate like they're starting to realize like i'm Okay, so I'm going to start specifying a building which costs more, but actually does cost less over time as a side effect, but is more sustainable. So that capex opex argument could be solved from something quite unexpected reason to be on. I, you know, kind of thinking about it now. Well, maybe if you didn't pay architects to do tedious, mundane tasks of creating and drawing and generating i'm going to just call it useful useless information because mm-hmm. yeah it's information that's going to be changed later at, at any point <laughs> at some point and then yeah um and you rather you you instead paid them to design buildings that performed um yes. yeah and yeah and and if you took out that sort of wasteful activity um, maybe you could re- reassign that that budget to more, um, uh, you know, to better activities, and and therefore the the better performing building may not cost more, um, because you've 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 yeah because you spend more time on on 
I mean, let's be honest, when we all went, you know, when, when we went to architecture school, I never in a million years imagined that people would be spending hours on end, days on end, weeks on end doing these quite tedious tasks. Like you go to architecture school and you design all this cool, crazy stuff, right? You think about space and people and how people use buildings. How, how do you make people happy using buildings? And that's you spend your first six months doing door schedules. Yeah. And yeah, I, I did door schedules and disabled toilet details. I remember it very, very clearly. And it's like, oh my God, what have I just entered? It's like, I'm full of all this energy and this, these crazy ideas. And that's what architects are really good at. Like let, let them be really good at design. Like, like let them create amazing spaces for people. I, rem- I remember when we started working for life. contractors and a contractor told me that they never use architects door schedules. Because they don't well, trust them. What's the point? Then? <laughs> and 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 I'm saying what you know, like the thing that architects hate the most, which is doing door schedules, um, and spend so much time doing, nobody uses because they don't trust them. And what what the contractors end up doing is sending the drawings to their door supplier and saying, "Can you make up a schedule of all the doors that you're going to provide for us?" Trust and, we'll, and we'll risk. Tra- we'll tra- <laughs> oh, trust and risk. Isn't it? It goes, yeah. it goes back to that, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, it's just, mm. it's just crazy. Like people, the industry is full of such talented people. I think, I think like sometimes we get lost in the way, like we get, like we, we, we love to moan about construction. It's one of our favorite jobs uh, to do sometimes. But actually, if you think about it, like it's, it's an industry full of really amazingly talented, smart people. It's just that like, we get stuck in these really antiquated processes, which don't really make any sense. Um, where like this is where technology can come in and really help out and i think you know this this is why you know i'm seven years of bim object and i still believe that it's solvable you know to to provide all this information to make better design decisions i i really believe in it and, and i really believe that it will create a huge sustainable impact a positive sustainable impact and I think everyone will enjoy designing a lot more and we'll be able to get much more efficient buildings. You know, manufacturers and manufacturers, I think they re- they really want to help. They they understand that, of course, they are responsible for their de- their data. They own it. I think that's really key. Goes back to what um, John was saying earlier, right? Like like trust and trackability and traceability and certification like they own the data. That's really key. They need to get it and spread it to as many people as as possible, so it can be used to make better design. And 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 I think that's absolutely key. And it just needs to be easier. I think everything's still challenging today. Yeah. Um, you know, there's only so many hours in in the day to do work. I wanted to bring the, the discussion a little bit on, and I suppose it's related to that transparency and um, how technology is sort of opening up and creating a transparency, but. Uh, on the other side of that is smoke and mirrors and you know big <laughs> big companies with marketing engines um that are sort of convincing people to to take on inferior products and it's not only in the building products uh, arena it's maybe in the the technology arena as well you know some of the technology vendors are putting great stories out there of you know technology solutions but then they're not actually solutions do you see a lot of that happening where people are being sold a pup if you like what are you saying Ralph? Technology. I, I work in <laughs> I, I work in marketing are you accusing me yeah. of, uh, of oh, no of well, I'm asking. No, no 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 i I'm think asking. i think it's a really good point you know it's all these buzzwords which come out 
and and like companies jumping on these these buzzwords and you can and you can kind of say it from the very beginning you know the big architectural design software vendors jumping on the term bim and a lot of the industry still thinks unfortunately bim is software and software is bim that started from the out, from the outset you know things like we're now going through level 3 you know level 2 when level 2 came out people were going oh this my technology does level 3 level 4 like level four doesn't even exist. What the hell is level four? 17D now, I think, probably. And now we've got like digital twin tech, which is out and, and common data environments, which of course John knows a lot. Lots of, but people are using these buzzwords to kind of, if I'm going to be really honest, like to sell software licenses. And it doesn't really, doesn't really help. It doesn't help move the conversation forward. It doesn't really, there is some amazing technology being produced out there. And it's fantastic and solving huge problems. Um, but of course, you, yeah, I mean, you're always going to get the players which use their marketing engines who see these new softwares, these new techs as risks, and they try and cover themselves. Um, and ones which just out and out just don't do what they say. It's not Ron Seal, it doesn't do what it says on the tin. It's something very different. Sector we could look at that have maybe gone through that and come out the other side and said, yeah, well, yeah, we started off with all these individual vendors sort of fighting with each other and you know, um, and then eventually we came up with a solution where we can all work together. I, I don't know. I'm just uh, probably asking the question. Like, is there a sector with that construction could say, well, you know, that sector went through that phase where everybody was marketing solutions that weren't that useful, but they came through that and... I mean, what usually happens is you get market consolidation, right? Where you get just less and less and less and less vendors offering to an industry, and then you end up with almost monopolization. I mean, I don't think that's ever going to happen in construction because I think construction is just such a broad industry, which is very different regionally. So I, I, I'm not really worried about that. But has it happened in other sectors? I, I mean, could you say there's a sector like healthcare or finance or yeah, travel or anything where they... yeah, comms, comms, it's happened in, hasn't it? I mean, well, look at music. Music, it's happened. There's only there's only so many players. The streaming wars. I mean, then that's happening now in video, right? I mean, you, you, there's there's lots of players who want to deliver video content to, and obviously it's B two C business, but um, who who want to deliver content and and companies come up and then they merge and there's just been a merger here in sweden recently between two of the big because they clearly can't compete against netflix you look at what bbc and itv have done with their service in the uk they they realize they potentially can't compete with a netflix and they need to join forces to distribute internationally it's starting to see consolidation which has already happened in music in communications i guess the same again but the communication is very much based on infrastructure, right? I mean, like you have to have 3G, 4G, 5G networks. Who owns those networks? How do you? It's quite hard for a new player to come into those markets for good and bad things, really. So when I when I mentioned telecommunications, what I was uh, implying was that there was a standardization around common concepts within the industry. Um, so like what what a user, for example, when you call Vodafone, whether you're calling Vodafone to cancel a contract or three to cancel a contract or mobile phone service providers here, 
but they all have the same processes. Okay, you want to you want to shut your account, you want to move your number. Okay, that's a straightforward process to move your number to another provider, different things like that. But the pattern that is common across all industries is that when a concept moves from and, and something that we could potentially bring back to the product life cycle as well, and something that I heard throughout throughout this um, podcast was that architects are creating products in a, in a custom format. You know, manufacturers yeah. are, have productized these objects. And, and one thing that you touched on, Matthew, is the commoditization of these objects. And the thing that enables the product to evolve from a product stage to a commoditized state commoditization stage is the standardization of the interfaces to do with these product object models. Once they reach the commodity stage, you see new sources of value being started to be developed in the custom stage and the product stage. You know, so they're building on top of these standards. So to your point around the the challenge that you know these mergers, etc., are creating. It's, I, I would actually disagree that it's more difficult for an SME to get involved. I'd say it's more, more difficult for an SME to actually get involved when the product, when, when the object is at the product stage, if you like. And the reason mm-hmm. being is because it's not standardized. So you need to be in the know to say that the interest of the bigger organizations are to keep away from the commodity stage and really keep inefficiency within the process. And that's how they remain dominant within, yeah, the, within the market. So if you look at if, if you look at the interesting work that Brighton would have done on uh, grid standardization within public sector buildings, so they went away and they studied the grids of all the different public sector buildings that we had to try and identify common, common grid elements. So then you can start standardizing rooms based on grid, because if you take... Uh, take take a bedroom for example right so uh, from a public sector we build bedrooms for a number of different purposes we build bedrooms in prisons student accommodation nurses fire stations um there's there's many different places at uh, army of course barracks of course we build bedrooms in many different places but as a public sector which is one client you know, holistically one one client you're basically building bedrooms differently for every single sector that you're working to you haven't standardized your grid haven't standardized what a bedroom should be. Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be different size bedrooms. And obviously, the elements um, which go into a bedroom in a prison and a bedroom for a student, I hope, are different because, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, they should be different. Um, and but, but also, you know, there's there's a difference between, you know, army, you know, between a between a, a younger cadet and obviously a general again. So, but still standardization of grid. One example, actually, that I, I thought of when I was just sitting here, John, when, when you were talking, I think one area of standardization in construction is kitchens. So kitchens run off a 600 grid, 600 millimeter grid or, or like part of. Right. So you can get a 450 mil dishwasher. The standardization of kitchens is fantastic because, you know, when you're building a kitchen, whether you go to Ikea or you go to, you know, Wix in the UK or H&H out in here in, in Sweden, you can, you know, buy one part of your kitchen from one supplier and then buy another part of your kitchen from another supplier. But you know it's going to work because it's running off a 600 grid. You know, you can buy the carcasses from one, the doors from another. You can buy your ovens and your and your white goods from several suppliers. It's all off a 600 grid, all of it. Everything runs off the 600 grid. And that's a really 
good and therefore going back to your comment john an sme can enter a kitchen product market quite happily because they know they're going to build the best fridge in the world right let's say like a fridge that doesn't run on electricity someone go and design that but they know it needs to be 596 millimeters wide to fit within the 600 grid to allow for tolerance they already know what size it needs to be and how tall it needs to be because it runs off the standard grid so standardization you know i mean that it comes down to that so standardization makes things work you know, yeah like, and uh yeah, when when and we often talk about standards on this podcast, and you know, I think people hear the word standards and immediately switch off, and it, you know, like it's a one of those words that just gets a visceral mm-hmm. reaction where you just think immediately it's something that's burdensome and it's going to be complicated and it's it's something best avoided, but actually it's it's the opposite, and you see that throughout the world. Mm. Standardization is what makes things work. It's the reason we have drinking water, good electricity, constant communication networks. (laughs) It's all because of standards. And that's probably the part that the construction industry is still grappling with, is trying to standardize. And even the work that's being done on product data, trying to standardize product data, you know, at a European level is still in its infancy, I suppose. You know, there's some great work done at Send TC442 with yeah, the standards and, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, there's work across Europe to digitize the market with the smart CE marking and, mm. yeah, various other initiatives, but it's very early days. Um, but it's, it'd be great to see. And yeah, and it's early days because you just have to think of the, the scale which needs to be done. I mean, there's lots of architects and contractors in the world, but now, you know, go down, go down those, the, those levels and look at the supply chain and, and look at the amount of manufacturers which deliver products to building sites. You know, it is, it is tens, hundreds of thousands. I mean, like something like, I think the Construction Products Alliance, the CPA has something like 55,000 members in the UK, of which 95% of those are SMEs. And, and a lot of those, a lot of those companies produce one, some, you know, produce just one product. They're a specialist in producing something for hospitals. Now you've got to go out to them and you've got to go, Hey, so there's this big digitization thing happening. We need your data. Like just that, that as a scale is just, is just, it's so easy to say, oh, just just digitize some stuff. And like, well, isn't, to, isn't the problem that everybody's expecting those SMEs to figure it out for themselves? You know, to yeah. go and read 500 standards and no one's going to go and, and read <laughs> TC442. Yeah. So I mean, I've I've read it. I've also read, you know, you know, I'm sad. I've also you know read a little bit of you know ISO 19650 and like, and I was did some work on PAS 1192, some of the parts like like all those things. But that's because I'm I'm interested, but also there's a vested interest in my job. You have to turn around and think about the manufacturers. The manufacturer's job is to to manufacture a product as best as possible, and to sell it as much volume as they can mm. to ensure profitability. That's their job. That that is why manufacturers exist. Going back to the false marketing. I think another false marketing area of, of where we are is general overcomplication of what we're trying to do. You know, if, if you want to go and speak to all these people, we need to, we, we need to really simplify the language that we use and be really honest about what we're trying to get people to do. And basically what, what we're trying to get people to do is we need a data set from you so we can measure a building. That's what we want. That, that is the most basic level. 
Right now, we don't have a standard for that data set. So let's take it anyway and let's see what we can do. Yeah. And then when a, Just, when a standard comes along, then we can start doing smart stuff like mapping. But we never, I don't think we should ever expect the SMEs to go do like smart mapping and all those sorts of things. I think that's, they need technology. Industry wise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just to kind of wrap it up, because we are getting to the time. Um, yeah. If we, our theme is innovation and um, looking ahead. So I suppose we, we spent a lot of this, this call to looking at the, the reality or the the current situation, um, looking ahead and innovation and in your mind, what is the big gap? We're like, where is the big area of innovation that needs to happen or is maybe gonna that you see is going to happen soon? Or um, you know, what's 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 keeping you excited about the future? I, for me, for me, it's looking at. Um, looking at building something which 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 really does perform to what people want. I mean, construction's about people, right? I mean, we build buildings for people and experience, and and the quality of building, the quality of 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 someone's home, the quality of someone's office. You know, we've just come out of COVID, which has been been terrible. Everyone's been working from home, been working from their beds. How is that going to change? The way we use buildings in in the future, I really hope that there's like a, a massive shift. And what I'm really excited about is that I think we're very close to understanding the long term impact of construction. And construction as an industry produces 40% of all solid waste. So buildings, 40% of all solid waste and 35% of all CO2. Right. So we as an industry really need to look at our existing stock and what we build. And we need to be really clever and work out how do we just be more efficient just on the sustainability part. I think for me, that's kind of what makes me really excited. Um, and I think the technology kind of exists now. I think the technology is there. What we're doing and you know, we're evolving what we're doing here at BIM Object with you know, getting more data into the hands of people that need it. But all the technology around it, the analysis tools, the simulation tools, you know, smart C marking, you know, uh, you know, factories to build stuff, all that's coming. And I, and I think the output is just just a more eco friendly, sustainable, people friendly built environment. I think that's that's what gets me really excited. And I think it's there. I think it's doable. I think the big step is is education and understanding where to spend the money. I think that's that's the biggest barrier to getting there. I don't think it's I think technology exists. I think it's there. I think there's most of it is already there. It's just people and education and the willingness, the willingness. Behavior. John, did you have any final questions or comments or? Yeah, just uh, the final one there was just something I was dying to bring up on the back of that point there or that I made around the evolution of the building product and equivalent digital um, representation into the commodity phase of, uh, I suppose, our market segments. Um, I just wanted to pick up on one of the points that you made earlier that sent, set off an alarm bell in my head. Matthew, around mm -hmm. the, uh, you don't think we'll ever get to the stage where we're configuring a house or a place that we will live like we configure a new car. And one of the things in that standardized 
application brings is the standardization of interfaces, which enable things like the standardization or the configuration of the car. So if you think of it, all the seats, if you like, have standardized rails to attach to the body um, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you're essentially switching out what you want, sports seat to standard seat, et cetera. And I think I may yeah. have I think I may have may have mis misspoken then because that that's not what I meant. What I meant was so I no I hundred percent want to go on online and design my house in some kind of yeah, car. Yeah. Similar to it. It's 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 more of the the process of building it, the process of 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 of, of how you interact with a site. So like, you know, one thing that will be custom of that design will be probably the foundations because of the soil structure. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's what I mean. What, what I mean is you'll never, you'll never get to like a car level because a car, um, you know, it's just, it's driving on a road. We, we know what a road kind of is made of. It's, you know, tarmac is kind of standardized, right? But, but a house, so you could basically build, build the house completely in a factory, which has been configured by somebody online with standardized elementation. Absolutely. But still maybe like the foundations are custom. Like the 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 water pipes from the mains entering through the land, maybe custom. So like those those you'll always have some level of custom of custom within a within a project always. And I think we just have to be like, we have to accept that. I think we just have to be like that. The the furthest we can get is building a building in a factory. But then placing it on site and how the site works, of course, would be custom because most of our roads already exist in the world. Most of the plots of land already exist in the world. Like we're not we're not going to just knock down entire cities, regrid it and then build it up again. Um, like that infrastructure kind of already exists. So we have to kind of plug into the infrastructure. Um, that's what I meant. So, um, yeah. But but on your point of like the commoditization I, I totally believe in that. I, I totally believe that you should just be able to go into. And um, IKEA are trying really hard to do this. Um, so I, in Sweden, go and have a look. It's called uh, Bookluck, uh, B-O-K-L-O-K. Um, Skanska, of course, are building them. And obviously, they've tried a couple of times in the UK to, to do housing. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're getting there slowly but surely. But they have the, the same challenges that we all have. Supply chain. Um, you know, just on time delivery, all that stuff is, is, is into the factory. It's all there. All that supply chain stuff is still there. And, you know, look at what happened to Katera a few months ago. You know, again, another company that tried to they do. They did some amazing things, but they're still kind of stuck with an existing infrastructure. So it'll get there. I believe in fully manufacturable buildings. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just the site is always custom. It, at least, you know, I, someone can prove me wrong. I'm, I'm very happy to be proven wrong that a site can always be the same. It'll make life even easier. <laughs> Maybe so if you're doing a development, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, number of houses, there could be some of that. But anyway, um, we've reached, well, we've probably gone over the hour a little bit, but it's been a great talk, and I suppose that's always a good sign that we've had a great discussion, as if the time yeah, just flies right. away. <laughs> Uh, Matthew, just want to thank you for your your time and your input. It's been a great discussion. I really hope people pick it up and take this idea forward. You know that we should think about the built environment at the component level. Take get the information at that level correct, uh, shareable. Yeah, and that eliminate a lot of the sort of tedious and mundane tasks that people are 
carrying out at the moment, working with paper-based and generic information. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, we appreciate your time and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Lovely. Thank you much, guys. Have a wonderful uh, weekend.